Father, I just come and you know my heart. And so I don't confess it as though you don't already know it. My heart, like the heart of all our pastors, is heavy and broken this morning. God, I know even as I'm talking right now, there are just men in this room who are just the mention of sexual sin, of of the call to be like Jesus in their home, the the feeling of responsibility to care for their wives and their children. Just, it's a wave of guilt and shame over them right now. It's a lonely, lonely place where they're living right now. And I pray, Father, in this very moment, I pray that the Holy Spirit would invade their heart with power love and humble contrition and repentance, that there would be a turning to Jesus among us, God. Father, I pray that we, in the days ahead, starting in this day, that we would be men of God, the way that you've called us to be, not by our own resolve or power, but by the work of Jesus living in us. And so, God, I pray that you would do a work, a mighty work, a movement like we've never seen of great awakening and revival power in this day. And Lord, we ask that by your grace and for your glory, we would hear your voice from your word and that we would have hearts to believe and obey what you say. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, I wanna invite you to turn to Daniel chapter nine. Daniel chapter nine, as we continue our study of the book of Daniel This morning. Uh, During the 1800s, there were great movements of God in this nation and and really throughout the world. And one of the men that God used in the 1800s to be a part of a great awakening and a revival among God's people was a man named Dwight L. Moody. Many of you know that name. Moody was raised on a farm in Massachusetts. He was not very well educated, he only went to the fifth grade. As a matter of fact, he butchered the English language. He, he was actually so um, ill-educated that his ministry didn't even begin to adults. D.L. Moody began his ministry as a Sunday school for children. And one man who knew him um, later in his life recounted in one biography the first time he met D.L. Moody. It was just before the Civil War. And he said that Moody was in this little broken down shanty that had once been a saloon. He was teaching children the Bible by candlelight. And in that particular instance, this man walked into that little shanty and he found Moody standing there in front of the room, holding a small black child in his arms, trying to read the story of the prodigal son to that little boy by candlelight. And Moody's reading ability was so poor that there were several words in the Bible he could couldn't pronounce, and so we just had to skip over. Now listen to that man's first impression of Moody. He says this, I thought if the Lord can ever use such an instrument as that for his honor and glory, it will astonish me. It's quite the review, right? Yet the Lord did use Moody. 
Moody became a traveling evangelist. He went from town to town holding meetings, preaching the gospel. In a time before microphones and loudspeakers, crowds of 20 to 30,000 people would gather at one time just to hear Moody preach the gospel. It's estimated that in his lifetime, Dwight Moody presented the message of Jesus through his preaching or his writing to at least 100 million people around the world. He went viral before going viral was a good thing. And I'm not sure it's a good thing now. But anyhow, countless people heard the gospel through D.L. Moody and they gave their hearts to Jesus. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a great movement of God like that? Well, listen to what Moody had to say about great movements of God like that. Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. You hear what he's saying? Moody attributed every powerful movement of God to a movement of prayer among a few followers of Jesus who would persistently ask Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. And here is my point. If we say in our hearts that we desire to be a part of a great movement of God, we're effectively saying we want to be a part of a great movement of prayer because God has ordained that his great work among the nations of this world would be connected to the prayers of his people. And so the question, guys, is not really do you want to be a part of a great movement of God? The question is, do you pray like you want to be? a part of a great movement of God. And may the Holy Spirit answer that question for our hearts. You see, last week we were continuing this verse-by-verse study of the book of Daniel, and we also kicked off our annual week of prayer at the beginning of the year by looking at Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19. And what we saw is that at this point, Daniel is an 80-something-year-old man whose homeland is in ruins because of the moral and spiritual collapse of his nation. But then he picks up the word of God and he reads the book of Jeremiah and he reads God's promise. God promises that he will restore the Jews to their homeland as they seek his face in prayer. And so Daniel, at 80 years old, with a fallen nation as his homeland, kneels in prayer, believing the word of God and going before the Lord in powerful prayer. And that formed our big idea for us last week. It'll be our big idea as we continue this passage today. Here's the big idea. In distressing times, turn your face to God in his word and in prayer. Listen to me, friend. Like Daniel, you do not need me to tell you we are living in distressing times We are living in the ruins of a moral and spiritual collapse in our nation. And if you and I want to see a great movement of God, and I believe that many of us do, in these dark and difficult times we desire to see God work, then the call of God is clear for you and me today. To seek his face in his word and in prayer. And what we find in this text that we began last week is not only does the Lord use Daniel to teach us that we should pray, the Lord uses Daniel to teach us how we should pray. If you've been following along with our our week of prayer and the daily prayer guides we've published, what you've seen is there are at least six elements to powerful prayer that seeks the face of God in a fallen nation that we learn right here from the prayer of Daniel. Let me just share those six elements of powerful prayer with you again this morning. First, 
Powerful prayer has a foundation. It's the word of God. Powerful prayer is the expression of our devotion. Powerful prayer includes our adoration. Powerful prayer incorporates our confession. Powerful prayer requires our submission. And powerful prayer presents our petitions. And if you were here last week or joined us online, you may have seen that we walked through those first three elements of powerful prayer last week. So here's what we'll do this morning. We're gonna focus on the final three today and just walk through the remainder of verses one through 19 that we didn't cover last week, which by the way, is pretty much all of one through 19. We got three verses done last week. And so let's pick up where we left off on powerful prayer from the life of Daniel. And what it would look like in our lives today, starting there with number four, powerful prayer incorporates our confession. Let's read the word of God, Daniel chapter nine, verses four through 11 says this, I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Now, guys, you don't need a PhD in theology, and thankfully, I don't have one either, to see that Daniel is praying a prayer of honest confession of sin. Did you see it there? I'm going to read that again because you guys just, no, you see it clearly. I don't have to teach you anything to tell you that's a prayer of honest confession. And even though Daniel's life was a life that was marked by great faithfulness, we've stressed that over and again, his life was not perfect. And so he's not just confessing his sin as the sin of the nation that he's not actually guilty of. He's not confessing sin in some make-believe way that he hasn't actually committed. What he's doing is he's confessing the sin of his, his nation and he's also taking ownership of his contribution to it. You want proof of that? Verse 20, he says this, while I was speaking and praying, now notice this phrase, confessing my sin. 
So when he says we have sinned, he's not playing a shell game. He is owning his contribution to the sin of his nation because he has not lived perfectly himself. Daniel may not have been the most sinful of all people, but he isn't hiding the fact that he has taken part in some way of the sin of his culture. And I want you to notice something. He isn't shy about admitting that he has sinned before God. Look at what he says there in verse Verse five, four different ways he talks about his sin. He says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. I'd call that comprehensive, right? I'd call that someone who is calling sin, sin. And he even gets more specific by identifying what sin is. Notice he says, turning aside from your commandments and rules. He says, sin is falling short of anything and everything that God has commanded us to be and to do in his word, the Bible. Guys, that's that's a great kind of stopping point for us to talk just for a moment about this idea of sin. Something isn't sin just because you or I or someone in our world calls it sin, all right? As a matter of fact, it's a sin to tell someone that something is a sin that isn't actually a sin. You following me? Many of us grew up in a church culture that maximized sins that weren't actually sins and completely neglected to address real wickedness in our hearts. For instance, in the fellowship of churches or the culture of Christianity that I largely grew up in, going to movie theaters, dancing, wearing shorts, listening to contemporary Christian music, having drums in church, having a pastor who didn't wear a suit. Did you notice I wore a jacket just in case today? First time in years. It's cold outside. Women who wore pants instead of dresses, reading from any Bible that wasn't the King James Version, all were clearly presented as ungodly compromise and sin. Now listen, if you've seen me dance, you know it just might be a sin for me to dance. (laughs) But where do you find that in the Bible? All the while, in the church culture I grew up in, gluttony was considered a fellowship dinner. (laughs) Racism was just the way Southern people were. Self-righteousness was a prerequisite for leaders so they didn't hang out with actual sinners who may do something crazy, like have a glass of wine with dinner and you'd be seen with them. Where in the Bible were those things? Friends, there is only one standard for what is sin and what is not sin. And it is God's holy word, the Bible. And I realize the vast majority of people in our world develop an allergic reaction when a man like me starts talking about sin and I can see some of you itching already. But if we want a movement of God in our lives and our nation, church, it is time we agree with God and begin calling sin what it is sin. Failing to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is sin. Failing to love our neighbors as ourselves is sin. 
even when they disagree with us, even when they disagree with God, even when we can't quite get along, failing to love our neighbors as ourselves is sin. Failing to live according to God's design for personal integrity is sin. Failing to live according to God's standard for sexual purity is sin. Pride is sin. Greed is sin. Racism is sin. Self-righteousness is sin. Sin is a sin. It's not a mistake. It's not just poor judgment. It's not simply a lifestyle choice or a genetic predisposition. Even though all those things are real and not all of them are sin. Sin is sin. And it rightly brings the judgment of almighty God. And one of the reasons our nation is in the mess it is in is because at some point in time, we began to believe that we are smarter than God's word and began to redefine sin to the extent that now here we are living in a day and age where basically the only sin that's recognized as sin is for us to say there's such a thing as sin Guys, we're losing our ever-loving minds. Even worse, we're losing our never-dying souls. Our nation doesn't need self-help. We don't need practical pointers on how to be a better citizen. We don't need 10 steps to be a better father. And we definitely don't need those kinds of things, masking a raid as gospel preacher. We need to call our own selves to confess our sins in repentance and in faith. The call of God is to recognize sin for what it is and to turn to God in repentant confession. God's powerful prayer that brings the blessing of God requires us to get honest with ourselves before the Lord, to ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal our hearts to us so that we can confess our sin, seek his forgiveness and the restoration that comes to those who trust in Jesus. And I want you to notice before I leave this, uh, this first point that there's two characteristics of Daniel's confession I think we would do well to take notice of in this text. First, his confession makes no excuses. You with me? Verses six and eight, Daniel mentions the kings and princes and forefathers of his people, right? So uh, we can't go through Isaiah and Jeremiah where they tell us all about those people. But if you know anything about the people that Daniel's referencing, here's what you know. They were awful, like the worst of the worst. They were the kind of people who cultivated a culture in Israel and Judah that made it really difficult to do what's right. Can you imagine living in a culture where it became really difficult to do what's right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Yeah, you can. And Daniel could have easily pointed his finger at those wicked leaders and those social influencers of his time who literally punished people for being faithful to God. He could have said, Lord, I tried. I tried. I made as many attempts as I could to do what's right. And those people, the kings and princes and our forefathers made it nearly impossible to be faithful to you. They provoked me to sin. God, if you knew my family of origin, my cousin Bill was awful. 
He was so messed up. I didn't stand a chance growing up with a guy like that. He's the reason I am what I am. He could have just as easily said something like that. You know what you notice about Daniel's confession? He makes no excuses. There's no blame shifting. There's no justification of his sin. And church, this is a great word for us today because we have become masters at justifying our own sin. (laughs) We wouldn't be angry drivers if those snowbirds from up north would just learn how to drive. No offense, snowbirds, but it's true. (laughs) Just kidding, I'm kidding. But would you please look before you put it in reverse? It'd be awesome. We wouldn't be filled with lust if the women in our community would just start wearing modest clothes. They need to cover up. That's true. But it isn't the problem that's making our hearts filled with lust. We wouldn't be angry parents if our kids would just do what we say. Well, you know what? Maybe our kids would do what we said if we weren't such angry parents. We wouldn't be unloving spouses if our husbands or our wives just get their act together. Listen, friend, you need to know this and we need to hear it. There is never a good reason to do what is wrong. So true confession makes no excuses. Second, his confession makes no comparisons, all right? So as as Daniel's referencing the wicked people who are part of his culture, he doesn't use them as excuses, but he also doesn't make them his comparison. I want you to notice the first two words that he uses in verse eight, right before he talks about all of these wicked people, the kings and princes and his forefathers. He uses those two words. What are those two words? They're on the screen. They're bolded for you to read. What are they? To us. He lumps himself into the category of the wicked sinners of his day. He doesn't say, now, Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but man, I am not nearly as bad as those dudes. Brothers and sisters, this is another thing we desperately need to learn. The standard for comparison isn't the most wicked person we know. It's the perfect person of Jesus Christ and all of us us have fallen short of his glory. You know, my my kids were little, there was this tactic they employed. See if you can identify with it. Emily and I would correct their behavior and immediately and inevitably they would begin a doctoral dissertation on how their siblings had just done something worse. Dad, I know I shouldn't have hit her, but did you see what she did to me first? What I did was nothing in comparison to what she did to me. Anybody identify with that form of logic and reasoning? Anybody at all? You know where they got that move? From their dad. (laughs) It's deeply ingrained in us. Our fallen nature wants to compare ourselves with anyone we can find who's just a tick worse as we are to justify our own sin. Let me just give you a quick diagnostic test that I pray the Holy Spirit would use. As as your pastor is up here hammering some old-fashioned sermon about the need for confession of sin and repentance, let me just ask you this, and don't answer it out loud. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Have you been thinking about someone else who needs to repent, or have you been asking God to speak to your own heart? What would it look like, church, if we stopped comparing ourselves to some sinner around us and in humility we got before Jesus himself and said, Lord, 
Expose the sin only you see about me. Make my standard God's word and not my world. And guys, when we confess our sin, there is such good news for us. Look at verse nine. To the Lord, our God, look at this, belong mercy and forgiveness. Friend, you need to know this. God has mercy and forgiveness and he has all of it. All mercy and forgiveness belongs to him. He has all of the mercy and forgiveness you need. And for those who turn their hearts to Jesus, acknowledging their sin and humble repentance, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And look at this, to cleanse us from how much church? All unrighteousness. Guys, God sent his dear son Jesus to this world to die on a cross as the payment for your sin and mine. And he is faithful to forgive. Guys, the reason confession is so important is not because God is unaware of our sin. He sees it more clearly than we do. It's because we cannot enjoy the fullness of forgiveness for sins that we have buried and denied. Think about it. What use is there in you saying that you are enjoying the forgiveness of God if you claim you don't need it? Confession is part of the enjoyment of forgiveness as we bring our sin before God and have it cleansed forever by his grace. And I wanna encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit to show you any part of God's word where you may be living in unrepentant sin against him and do not leave this place. I would encourage you, do not move from this moment without acknowledging before the Father in confession and repentance receiving mercy and forgiveness. Fifth reason we see powerful prayer, the fifth element of powerful prayer is not only does it include our, our confession, it requires our submission. Let me show you what I mean. Verses 13 through 15. Verse 13 says this, as it is written in the law of Moses, as he continues to pray, he's reflecting on the word of God again. And he says, all this calamity has come upon us Yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, now notice this wording in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. We're experiencing the judgment of God, he says. Now look at this. For because the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. What works is he talking about? Calamity. Judgment, hardship. He says, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. There are several ways you see the submission of Daniel being emphasized in those verses, but as just pointed out there in verse 14, he says, the Lord has brought judgment on Jerusalem and the people of Judah. And then he makes it really clear there. And he is right to have done so. Guys, that is an incredible expression of submission. Do you see what he's doing? Daniel is so submitted to God as God that he's even yielding his heart to the discipline of God because he believes that God knows best and only does what is right. So powerful prayer requires submission. 
Let me say it this way, church. God is our God, not our cosmic butler. So one of the great guardrails to our prayer are the little words, thy will be done. You know, I know all of us have things that we're praying for, and I'm praying with you, many of you, for very specific things. I just want to ask you something. I think it's an important question for us as we talk about submission. Let me ask you this. What if God wants to do something in your life in a way you would never ask him to do it? Think about that for a moment. Let me tell you this little story. I've told you this before, but my my little girl, Mia, who's going to be 16 in just a couple weeks, isn't that crazy, church? Talk about northern, wait to to start driving until the snowbirds go home, honey. Um, She'll be 16. When she was little, she had a princess costume dress that she used to wear over her pajamas every morning as soon as she woke up, every single morning. And on more than one occasion, I've told you this before, she would go put on that dress and be twisted up from where she'd taken it off the night before to go to bed. And there were times when I would offer for, to help her and she would say, no, dad, I'd do it myself, right? It's a great picture of how many of us live our lives. Our father in heaven is ready to help. He's ready to do something glorious with our lives, but we fail to look at him. We, in effect, live prayerless lives by saying, no, dad, I do it myself. I've told you that story before. But there was another part of that dynamic I haven't talked about. And that was a dynamic that was also at play in those situations. There were some times where Mia would work hard and finally realize she needed my help. And she'd turn to me and say, dad, will you help? Dad, will you help? Which by the way, is music to a father's ears, right? His little girl saying, dad, will you help? It's great. But there were times when I could see things that she couldn't see. And I could understand things that she hadn't quite figured out. Like the reason she wasn't able to put that little dress costume on was because the sleeve was all twisted up and turned inside out. You ever had that sleeve come inside out and wrapped around? She had that on that dress multiple times and she was never gonna get that dress on with that sleeve twisted up like that. You know what that meant? It meant she had to actually take the princess costume off And let me get it straightened out so she could start all over again. And she hated that. When I'd say, hey, baby, you got to take that off. She'd had it 75% on. She hated that because in her mind, it seemed I'm heading in the opposite direction from where dad says he's helping me go. You see it? You see it there? She wanted me to help her her way. And she couldn't see this. I couldn't help her her way because her way wasn't going to help. And that's why we are called to pray with a heart of submission. Because there are times when we want God to fix the situations of our lives, but we only want his help our way. Friend, you need to know something today. Our God will not help us our way when our way won't help. Your father's too good for that. So it's called submission. It's called not my will, but yours be done. So let me just ask you, what are the things in your life that you're asking God to fix today? Y'all have them. 
might be your heart, your health. It might be your marriage, your home, your children, your child. I don't know what it is. It could be any number of things. What are the things you're asking God to fix? Let me ask you this. Is there the slight possibility that God sees and knows things you don't know? Possible? Would you allow for that? So then are you praying by laying it down and saying, God, will you fix this your way and not mine? What would it look like for those heavy places of your heart to be laid at the altar before your father this morning where it feels like you're asking him to fix something and he's taking it the opposite way and you can't see how it could possibly be where he wants you to go. Are you willing to lay it down and say, dad, I need your help and I want it your way, not mine. That's powerful prayer requires submission. And then last, as we close, powerful prayer presents our petitions. Guys, one of the most basic definitions for the word pray in the original language of the Bible is simply to ask. In prayer, we're asking God. And I think largely the most basic idea we all have of prayer is asking God for things, for help and for his work in our lives. And Daniel's no different and it's not wrong to pray that way. But here's what I want us to do. I want to quickly look at what Daniel actually asked God's to do, God to do. And I want you to just ask this, how is this, how is this different than the things you're asking God to do? Look at verse 17. He says, now therefore, He gets to the petition, oh, our Lord, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, oh Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear, oh Lord, forgive, oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel ends this prayer by asking God for at least three things right there. We saw them in our text. Each one of these could be a sermon on its own. Don't worry, you'll get to lunch today at three. It'll be great. But I'm gonna move through these three requests really quickly. First one is this. He asks for mercy from God. You saw it there, verses 17 and 18. Daniel's plate asks for mercy. Please for mercy, he says. And I love how he says it here. The basis for his request isn't anything good for himself. That's why it's mercy. He needs mercy because he doesn't deserve anything good. So he doesn't make any demands. Verse 18, he says, we do not present our pleas before you because of our own righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Basically he's saying, Lord, my hope is not that I think I deserve anything good. My hope is that you are just merciful and kind. He's not entitled. He's not demanding. He's humble and just says, God, be merciful to me. How would your request change if your primary ask was God? I don't deserve anything good, but I believe that you are kind. Show me mercy. He asked then second, 
not only for mercy from God, but glory to God. Verses 17 and 19, he prays God to be glorified in his world. And specifically, he says, work for, quote, your own sake. Simply put, here's what Daniel's asking. He's saying, God, I am motivated first and foremost by your glory. My deepest desire is for your agenda, not mine. I just want you to think for a moment as you're praying about the things in your life and the things you're asking God to do have certain desired outcomes. Here's what I want to happen. Let me ask you this. Is your first desired outcome, God be glorified in this? Show this world how great you are as you're asking for God to work in your sickness is your first motivation and God be glorified in it. As you're asking God to work in your career, is your highest goal more money or God's glory? As you're asking God for new relationships, is your highest goal companionship or someone in which you can display the glory of God? What would change about the way you pray if your deepest desire for your life was to show this world how amazing God is and to have a front row seat to see his glory for yourself? That's what Daniel asks. Mercy from God, glory to God, and then action by God. Verse 19, I love how Daniel says, it. He says, oh Lord, pay attention and act. Now he's not talking to God the way my teacher spoke to me in middle school with ADD. Pay attention, Titus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, God, you look on this because I'm looking to you. You think how different that is than many of us live our lives. We fixate on the problems of our life and fail to look to God in prayer. And he says, God, I'm gonna turn my face to you because I trust you'll turn your face to this. You will look at this, you will pay attention. And then he just asks this one thing, act, do. His basic request is this, God, do what only you can do. In other words, his prayer is an acknowledgement that if God doesn't do what only God can do, then nothing good will get done. And I cannot think of a better way to end this week of prayer than that. Church, one of the reasons why I believe we have lived prayerless lives is because we are depending on anything and everything to do what only God can do in our lives and our nation. And it is time that we realized only God can do what only God can do. Leaders and presidents and politicians are no hope for this nation. So why are we fixing our eyes on them? It's time we realize that programs and activities and facilities and budgets and parking lots are no hope for the church of Jesus Christ. So why would we make them our focal point? It's time that we realize that our own effort and work offer no hope for our families. It's time that we pray like only God can do what only God can do. You know why? Because only God can do what only God can do. And a people who believe that is a people who pray and seek God's face, asking him, Oh, Lord, in mercy for your glory, do what only you can do. Do you receive the word of God, church, today?
then can we pray? Can we end this time asking God to do what only God can do? I'm asking you to bow your heads and let's enter into a season of prayer. What a pity it'd be to talk about prayer and not pray. And some of you may want to huddle up with your husband or your wife, your children, your friend, and be praying in response to this. And I'm just going to walk through the primary things that we have seen today in prayer. Starting with a confession of sin. Right now, would you ask God to expose your heart to you? Is there any place where the Holy Spirit, using the word of God to clarify, is revealing a place of unrepentant, unconfessed sin? Would you just bring that to God and acknowledge it? No excuses, no comparisons. Right now, just acknowledge, God, I acknowledge this sin and it's sin. Would you acknowledge that we are part of a nation that is marked by rampant, unrepentant sin? And then claim by faith that Jesus is a savior, the only savior. And for you personally, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, come to him and claim that he forgives sins because he died on the cross as a payment for those sins and rose again to raise you up to new life. Call on Jesus to save you and those who are trusting in Christ. Rejoice that your savior forgives you. You are forgiven. Would you pray a prayer of thy will be done, of submission, specifically? What are those areas in your life where you desperately see your need for God to work? Would you pray, God, do your work your way and not mine there? I want your help your way and not mine. And help me to submit. Bring that before the Lord this morning. would you pray for mercy in your life over your marriage in your home over your children over this nation would you ask God for mercy to pour out his mercy for his glory that people would see how beautiful and glorious he is pray for mercy and glory
would you pray for God to do what only God can do? Pray for a great movement of God's power in this world, in this nation, in this community, in your own life and family. Father, I ask you to teach us not in a moment, but in a lifetime, what it looks like to be people who are devoted to prayer. God, I pray you'd help wake us from the slumber of prayerlessness where we effectively live like we don't need you. God, awaken us. Awaken your church, not just this expression of the church, but I pray that the church in the United States would be awakened from our slumber fervently seek your face, Father. Lord, we confess that great sin has marked our lives. Lovelessness, apathy, worldliness. God, on and on and on, we have not aligned our lives by your grace and power to your word. And so we confess great is our sin. Great is our sin. And we praise you that greater still is our Savior. Thank you for Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for a great awakening, not just in the acknowledgement of sin, but in the beauty of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. May the gospel be clear in our hearts and proclaimed in our mouths. God, give us an opportunity this week to tell someone else about Jesus and his glorious mercy and grace. Father, take our lives, work in them your way. May your will be done even if it's something we would never ask you to do. Let us yield to what you plan by your grace. And Father, we thank you. Thank you that when your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, you will hear from heaven, you will forgive our sin and you will heal our land. And so Father, thank you for your faithfulness in giving mercy. So Lord, we make our prayer and ask that this would ignite in our hearts a deep desire that would remain till Jesus comes again to be people who are marked by powerful prayer for the glory of Jesus and the good of your name. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.